Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Thank you everyone for joining today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. We are your hosts, Sayla and Eileen. And today our guest is Hunter Thompson. Hunter is a full-time real estate investor and founder of Asim Capital, a private equity firm based out of Los Angeles, California. Since founding Asim Capital, he has raised more than $35 million and directed the purchase of more than $90 million of commercial real estate across a variety of asset classes. He is the author of Raising Capital for Real Estate, How to Establish Credibility, Attract Investors, and Fund Deals. Hunter is also the host of the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast, which is frequently listed in the top 200 investing podcasts in iTunes. So we're very excited to have you on today, Hunter. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks again for the opportunity. Can we please tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and how did you get started in real estate? Sure. So, you know, I think that as investors, entrepreneurs, I think that predicting trends is a really important part of being successful. And you not only have to be able to predict them, though, you have to have the confidence to act on them. And perhaps more importantly, you have to let it be known that you feel like this is the way the winds are blowing. And so that is one of my very few strengths, thankfully. So when 2008 happened, the blood in the streets to me seemed like a great opportunity. And I was very insulated from that challenge. I was still in college at the time. So when 2008 happened, I said, looking at things from a historical standard, not knowing much about real estate, just understanding valuations and how businesses are valued and how real estate is valued, it was just very compelling. So I started looking into the financial sector, was drawn to the stock market, like I think a lot of people are early on, just not necessarily because of how compelling it is, just because of the overwhelming amount of marketing that those big firms like E-Trade and Scott Trade and just general stock market proponents have. And really hit a wall, not in 2008, but 2010, which is something that I talk about in my book, which is the European debt crisis. Basically, the European banks experienced something very similar to what happened in, in the United States, but in Europe. And it created massive volatility. There was panic. There was government bailouts. There was incredible volatility in the US markets. And all of a sudden, I remember the CNBC anchors started talking about how the Greece and the German bond yields all of a sudden were the single most important determining factor of everyone's portfolio. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. I've got to find a way to mitigate these sort of risks. I've got to find a way to invest in entities or assets which are straightforward enough so that a single person or a small family office can assess those risks and mitigate them on a consistent basis. And real estate is just one of those vehicles that checks all those boxes. Awesome. So when you started with the real estate, can you walk us through your first experience with the real estate investing? Sure. So you know, when I guess got started, I was very fortunate because the timing of the market played a huge role in a very favorable entry point. But I think what was even more impactful was that the market itself wiped out a bunch of bad ideas. And so when I entered the market, I was fortunate to learn from some very savvy, very sophisticated individuals that had already leapfrogged or at least overcome the more typical beginner types of strategies when it comes to real estate. So a lot of people, when they think of real estate, they think of buying single family houses, fixing them up, 
potentially fixed and flipping. For me, I wasn't really compelled by that. You know, I found that the gross economics did not make sense. You can produce, let's say, a 10% return, but a 10% of what? You know, I'm not in this industry to make $200 a month. So if you're buying a $800, excuse me, $80,000 house or something, and you're making your $800 a month in rental income, 400 of it's going to expenses, you're making four, that's just not going to get me there. And if I were to create a portfolio, even a hundred of houses like that, if you've ever talked to anyone that's done that, it's a massive headache. And the reason is simple. People talk about the scalability of commercial real estate. You can talk about systems and processes and software and lenders and all that, but just say this, there's too many addresses. The properties are too far apart. To manage a hundred houses takes someone full-time driving around different municipalities, et cetera, as opposed to one hundred unit multifamily apartment that has one address and one property manager that doesn't have to drive anywhere. So I found that very compelling. And then perhaps more importantly, from a personality standpoint, I like to deal with people and individuals who stand to gain or lose millions of dollars. And that part of the industry attracts Wharton Business School grads, Princeton grads, and people that are just very savvy. And so, you know, I definitely didn't go to Wharton, but I found that amongst those circles, I communicate better and people are more drawn to that. And so that's where I position myself in the niche. So one of the things in the real estate business is raising capital. Can you walk us through your first capital raise and what did you do to prepare and what was the outcome? Yeah. So first of all, I'll make a bold claim. Raising money is the single most lucrative, consistently sought after skill in the whole real estate sector. It's the one skill that if you can do this magic thing, which is send out an email, make $5 million appear, you will always have a place in this business. And I actually have a copy of my book right here. For those that you're just listening, I've got like seven copies. And the reason I have those is because I want to do everything I can to make sure that there's no copies sitting on my desk. I want tens of thousands of people to have access to this book because I put my blood, sweat, and tears into it. I gave away everything that it took to create my business. And there are certainly people that have raised more money than me, but having raised $35 million for investments I'm really confident in, if we can all do this together using this exact playbook, we can make an impact on the stock market. We can help people get money out of that casino and into things that create predictable cash flow. So what the book is all about is the tools that it takes the apps, the secrets, the, the exact emails, the scripts, the way to build relationships, the way to position yourself as credible, the exact strategies that I use to build you know, a $100 million real estate portfolio. And I'll give you just one kind of key takeaway. Willpower doesn't work. This is a challenging business. A lot of people get into this industry because they want freedom, right? And there's some truth to that. Real estate does create a lot of freedom. But it's more about the potential for freedom rather than actually. Like I can go to Mexico for a month right now, but I'm here working 60 and 70 hour weeks because I love what I do and it's competitive and there's, there's a lot on the table and I'm trying to set up myself and my family for a good future. And guess what? Everyone else that I work with, they're singing the same song. They can go to Mexico, right? And maybe one day we all will. But until that time, we're going to keep hammering because I think we're in a massive war against the stock market. And I'm not saying that if you have any money in the stock market, it's a bad decision. It's just that 
real estate, particularly syndicated 15 to $50 million commercial properties, have played almost zero role in almost everyone's portfolio, and they should be playing a massive role. You know, probably 90% of my net worth is in investments exactly like that. And I sleep like a baby because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And we also have a copy of your book too, and we've read it from cover to cover and found it very, very helpful. And definitely using some of a lot of those strategies that you outlined in your book to apply it to our real estate as well. So definitely encourage everybody listening to go out and get yourself a copy. Which you can do, by the way, for free. All you got to do is pay for the shipping. It's raisingcapitalforrealestate.com. And the reason I say it's like the name of my company, by the way, is ASYM Capital, A-S-Y-M. And it's short for asymmetric. So as investors, we want to find ways to invest capital on a risk-adjusted basis that's favorable. So to buy an $8 book, which I claimed has the tools to build a $100 million portfolio, probably a good way to spend the $8. They say success leaves clues, and we definitely want to follow in your footsteps, Hunter. Thanks. Appreciate it. Like that, you say the comparison, the stock market and the casino, it's a really a gambling of your money out there. And especially you have no control of over the stock market. Someone can say something on Twitter real quick and a stock market can go up or down. So you have absolutely no control on that. I really love it that, that you made that comparison. Hunter, will you be able to share some of your tips and tricks of how have you been able to grow your investor base? Sure. So. When people think about raising money, I think that most of them think about themselves at the middle of the circle, like most people do, think about themselves at the center of the universe. And they're going to go out to their uncle, they're going to go out to their mom, they're going to go out to their rich friend that has a franchise or something and try to get them to give him or the person that's raising money $25,000, $50,000 so they can cumulatively raise a half million, a million dollars and purchase a $3 million piece of property or something like that. The trick about that is it can work. It can get you a half million dollars because there are people that trust you in your life that love you. It doesn't matter how skilled you are or not skilled. You've got 10 people in your life that's got 25 or $50,000. The challenge though, is that in six months and you find a bigger deal that could be even better, you go to those same people, they're going to be interested in where their original investment was. Why do you need more money? I already gave you $25,000. Did you blow it? So there's a couple of reasons for that. One is they invested with you, not necessarily because of the financial implications. They invested with you because they like you. So what you really need to do, because it is impossible to create those types of relationships on a consistent, scalable basis, you have to stop thinking about yourself in a circle, going out to convince people to get you to get that money back in the circle. You got to create a funnel. You have got to create a lead attraction funnel that attracts leads to your website, converts them into potential buyers via an exchange. So creating an ebook, for example, exchanging that value, which is their email address for the value, which is your ebook. Take them through a scalable and replicatable lead nurture system through email sequences or webinars or podcast interviews you've done or found to be useful. And then setting yourself up for when you send out an email about your new deal, that it gets raised very, very quickly. And so what the book is about is putting yourself in a position so that you don't have to chase anyone. You know, that's not my background. I'm not the guy that has got the best closing strategies in the business. I raised $5 million in about 72 hours. That wasn't because I didn't take no for an answer. That's because we have 
so many people interested in investing with us that just a piece of them, just a small percentage of them, if they move forward, the number is going to be pretty impressive. So you know, I'm in the process of working on a keynote presentation I'm going to do for our annual conference, which is called Intelligent Investors. And if you can want to learn more about that, IIREC2020.com. I'm putting together this keynote about grow your list, scale your portfolio. Because when people ask, you know, how did you raise four or five million dollars in, in a couple of weeks or a week? The answer is it's all about the list attraction and curation. So if I have a list of 10,000 people and 1% move forward at a $50,000 average, that right there is the answer to how you can raise $5 million by sending out one email. But the problem is most people get stuck thinking, okay, if I'm in a room of 10 people and I, my typical close ratio is 10%, if I focus really, really hard, maybe I can get that close ratio up by 100%. I go from one person in the room to two people in the room. If you come up with a close strategy that increases your close ratio by 100%, you need to be writing a book on close strategies. Like That would be one of the best things in the world. But the issue with that is that now you've gone from getting one investor to two, and that's basically useless. I don't care about getting one investor to two. I want to go from presenting from 10 investors to 10,000. And if I'm at 10,000, I want to go from 10,000 to 100,000. So I'm hopefully giving you the framework through which to view this world. It's all about scalable relationships. And so I know I'm going on a bit of a rant, but this is, you know, this is obviously my life's work. But I'll say this investors want to be treated as if they're special and you really want to build a personal relationship with them. And so when people hear my way of talking about raising money, they feel like it's impersonal. But the reality is nothing can be further from the truth. It's just expedited, scalable, and replicatable. So anything that I do that's recorded, this is an example. I can repurpose this. I could use this for a million different Instagram posts. I'm recording it through Zoom, yes, but I'm also recording my own video that I'm going to be transcribing. Maybe I'll turn into a blog post. Maybe I'll put it on Instagram. Maybe I will do something with it. And sending out different versions of this across different platforms. So that's how this works. And then also by the time that someone gets on the phone with me, if they're able to do that, that 30 minutes is very meaningful to them because they've consumed so much of my content. The credibility is so high that even though I may be asking for their money, what they're going to do when they get on the phone call is say, wait, as in the Hunter Thompson, as in I've listened to 300 hours of your podcast and I've read your book or whatever the particular metric may be. And that 30 minutes, I can build a legitimate relationship with someone. And many of our investors know me better than some of my best friends because they spent so much time learning about me without taking my time on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So hopefully that fills in some of the gray areas there. So you mentioned about your annual conferences. Can you repeat that again to, for our listener? When is that and where do they go in order to sign up? Yeah, so I'm working on two things right now. But the first one I would say go to is IIREC2020.com. And we have had some just absolutely fantastic speakers and sponsors that have made that event possible. You know, last year we did something, I believe it was called the 10,000 unit panel, where there was three speakers, each of which controlled 10,000 units. Um, we've done things with securities attorneys. If you're contemplating raising money, for example, really important to do that. Asset management, raising capital, anything like that. And at the elite level. So if you are a listener to my podcast, which is the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast, we tend to lean more experienced, right? In the sense that there's a lot of 
podcasts out there that focus on beginners. Getting from zero to one is critical and is probably the hardest part of the whole thing. Once you do your first deal, you're off to the races. But that has not been the area or the niche within the podcast community that we've talked about. So many of the guests that we have on our show have purchased 10 assets, have taken eight full cycle, hundreds of millions of dollars ETC. And that, again, is just a personality thing, but also you got to pick a niche and that's where we are. So if you're interested in the intermediate to advanced stuff, IIRC is an excellent resource. Thank you for that. So as you know, so you mentioned earlier that you were able to raise $5 million within 72 hours. That's really, really uh, uh, wonderful and, and successful. So have you seen any challenges in raising capital, especially now during the COVID-19 situation? You know, generally speaking, surely, but I don't much care for generally, right? I only care about my business. So it may be the case that people are getting undersubscribed and can't get deals closed, et cetera. But I'm just going to worry about how we adapt in this environment. And so one of the things that we did, and this is nothing against anyone who's closed deals during this time, but we were very, very forthcoming about the economic implications of slowing down the movement of an economy in the sense that the inertia that takes place from an economic perspective, if it is stopped in a very unnatural and ahistorical manner, it could be catastrophic. Now, we did see that there were government things put in place that maybe relieve some of those challenges. But regardless, we still haven't really felt the pain yet. And so when we saw this economic inertia being basically deleted through government lockdowns, we sent out emails saying, it's impossible for us to transact right now. Because in real estate, if you take a multiple of income, so you have a monthly income in OI, multiply that by 12, divide it by a five cap, now you have a purchase price. That's typical. But if that income is unreliable and you have a massive question mark between unemployment data and collections data, it's very hard to make the case that that purchase price is accurate. Because if you take an inaccurate monthly net income, multiply it by 12 divided by a five cap, you've got a huge delta between what actually may be the case and what actually is a reasonable purchase price. So we did not do a real estate deal in 2020 so far as the recording of this October. I looked at many deals, but I was just not able to come to terms with the prices. Part of the reason for that is that unemployment data is high. Collection data has also been extremely high as well. So what can explain that? Most likely government intervention. If you have 15% unemployment, you can't have 92% collection data on a workforce housing property. There's someone else filling the bucket, right? So the question then becomes, is the government stimulus going to continue? And that is a very unreliable way to transact. Now, I could see an environment, in this environment, I could say, what happens if we turn rental increases down to zero for 18 or 24 months. What does it look like then? Okay, can we get to a 12% IRR in that environment? And sure, you can, but sellers are going, why would I possibly sell to this to you at a 12 IRR with no rental income for 12 months? Our collection data is extremely high. There's no distress. And so every month it's been, we'll just wait another month and see what happens. And it's been able to go on. So it's been very hard for us to come to terms with sellers because we want something that's not realistic from their perspective. So we recently put on ATM deal, which is the first that we've done. Um, I've been investing with ATMs for the last year and a half or so, and it's a fascinating market. Most investors, I wouldn't say most, but probably four out of 10 savvy investors. If you say, I'm 
moving a lot of my net worth over to the ATM business, there's probably going to be four that say, you're completely insane without looking into the model at all because of the technology risk and the fact that they don't use ATMs a lot. But we have found a very interesting niche where the unbanked and underbanked demographic, which makes up about 25% of the US population, by the way, which is shocking to some. And those who are relying on EBT cards, for example, ATMs provide those distributions and withdrawals. So somewhere around 75 to 80% of the transactions are made up by the demographic I just mentioned. That data isn't changing at all based on technology. In fact, we have actual ATM-specific data that year-over-year basis, it's increasing and increasing and increasing. So the reason I mention all that is that we just lived through the mother of all sensitivity tests, COVID, actual lockdowns, and these ATMs performed spectacularly. And so we're going to continue to focus on those quasi-recession-resistant investment vehicles for the foreseeable future. Thank you, Hunters. So from you, I want to talk about from the investor standpoint a little bit. Do you have any recommendations for them, uh, especially now? Is there any due diligence checklist or anything or they should do differently to invest in real estate, uh, especially now in the COVID-19? Sure. So I created a very robust list of questions that active owners and passive investors should be asking. And to be honest with you, it's branded as something for passive investors, but the truth is it's more a list of questions that sophisticated operators should be able to answer. And so if you're really, really savvy in the world of passive investing, you're going to know more about this than some operators. That's just the reality of the situation. So if you want to download that list, it's available at cfcmentorshipprogram.com forward slash questions. And it's literally a list of 111 questions. And, but generally speaking, let me give, give you my thoughts on what would be compelling in this environment. I really like mobile home parks. I really like self-storage. I always like multifamily workforce apartments. There's a massive question mark surrounding defaulted debt right now. So mortgage debt that's been defaulted. Question marks create an opportunity for pricing arbitrage. So when everyone's scared, there's usually an opportunity to take advantage of that. Sometimes it's not worth the risk. So everyone's scared of retail right now. But I think there's so many unknowns in retail that it may not matter what the return is. There's just a lot of question marks. Another one that I'm really interested in and have invested in is the senior living and assisted living space. A similar question mark due to the risks around COVID, where if you have a tenant who gets COVID, quarantining them within the facility is possible, but there's obviously some challenges with everyone living so close together and the tenant base is more susceptible to the risk of actually falling, you know, passing away. So you got to be very cautious about that, right? Because in assisted living, the expense ratio is close to 70%, which is shocking, you know, compared to like multifamily apartments or self-storage, it's like half of that. So what this means is that if you have a 10% drop in occupancy in senior living, you can have a problem paying debt service. In senior living, it's not the case that 10 people move out because they find a better property. They typically pass away. So what you want to avoid is all of them passing away at the same time. Unfortunately, that's the type of risk that COVID may present. So I'm not the only one that knows this, by the way. I'm sure you're familiar with this. A lot of listeners are as well. The key there is who takes that information and cr create asymmetric returns with the same information. You know, what operating partners are well positioned to take that, that general thesis and say, okay, I can, knowing that I can outcompete based on operational efficiencies. It's similar to the way that 
you know, why do we all get into real estate? They're not making any more land. It's like, well, yeah, got it. So that that's not going to help me really, right? You got to find operating partners that know that and then know how to beat everyone else in operational efficiencies. So right now, your next focus is really the ATM space, the self-storage, mobile homes, and the senior livings. Correct. And to be honest with you, that's typical. The reason for that is that our thesis has always been that the recession-resistant vehicles produce asymmetric returns consistently in all stages of the economic cycle. So we're happy to give up the potential upside of, let's say, hotels, which are highly cyclical, or development even. But the reason we're able to give that up is that I would much rather be able to intelligently participate in 2006, in 2009, in 2014, 2017, by playing the role of identifying best-in-class operators in their particular niche so that we can be diversified and invested. That's so critical because let's say you have your whole business focused on retail, your whole portfolio focused on retail. If there's a massive question mark and everyone pauses and every lender goes, we're not loaning, you don't want to miss five years of potential compounded interest. It really, really matters. So if I can say, okay, retail is a question mark, assisted living looks interesting, multifamily is now really compelling again, and just keep that portfolio invested over 50 years, it makes a huge difference. And that's, to me, that's what this is all about, multi-generational wealth through real estate. Absolutely. So Hunter, how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? Oh, man, it's been a while since I've asked, been asked that question, but I mean, the truth of the matter is I did not make a very good employee. You know, I a job because no one would give me a job. You know, I created a company because no one would give me a job. I created my conference because no one let me speak it. I created my podcast and no one would have me as a guest. Right. So that's the story of like my successes. It's as a result of I always felt like I was six months ahead of where I actually was. Okay. So what that means is that, oh my gosh, I've got these accomplishments. Surely everyone will want me to be on their podcast. And later, maybe six months later, then yeah, people did. But at the time I was like, okay, this isn't happening fast enough. I got to create my own show. I got to create my own conference. I got to create my own company. And so it has allowed me to live, you know, delusionally six months ahead of where I'm actually. Does that make sense? And I think something that, so that's personal, right? But what's actually been surprising and is potentially more compelling is that writing that book, there's, it's kind of a lead, it's the tool book. It's not like a marketing document. I mean, I'm sure you've read books where it's like, hey, I'm Hunter, buy my program. You're like, I paid for this book. Like, what the heck? So that's not what it is. It's really like, I want to say, hey, here's the book. You're going to be blown away by this and they're going to want more, whether it be investing with me directly or raising their own company or investing in our deals, raising money for our deals, whatever that may be. One of the things that's potential is that we do have this mentorship program. And I was hesitant of the space because the time at which I started my company, so many people had been burned doing fix and flip properties and being taught by people who had never fixed a property and paying $50,000 or $100,000 to be quote, tutored by them. And so I didn't like that, but felt obligated to create ours because of that, right? Because we have actually had success and I want to empower others to do so as well. And so while I kind of went begrudgingly into this part of the industry, seeing other people use this tool book and have success is so much more powerful than anything else. Like, Next week, we're going to have someone on our show, a group of three students that, you know, they just finished raising $1.5 million, their first $1.5 million. And what does that mean? They're off to the races, right? Like getting from zero to 1 million is the exact same tool book from getting one to 10. 
And once you go to 10, it's like you're taken off. So that's, that's how it's impacted my life. Just being able to receive mail from someone saying like, I'm going to be able to put my kids through college. I'm going to be able to, you know, avoid getting a W2, whatever it is, that's their thing. So thanks for asking that. Oh, no, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing. So if you were uh, to say there's one thing that you know now that you wish you knew back when you first started, what would that be? I underestimated the importance of building my list, right? So I underestimated why it's so critical to have lead capture mechanisms and those lead capture mechanisms should not be fluff. So on this call, obviously it's, it's a reoccurring thing. I mean, you asked me for a resource and I have the thing. You've got to give me your email address to get the thing, but the thing is good, right? So like people make both mistakes. People say they don't have the thing, number one. If the thing exists, it's not that cool. And they may give it away without getting their email address. But I want to do all of those things. So if someone's going to go through the time of exchanging their email address, I want them to instantly know when they download that, that I am a credible individual and the rest of the relationship will, will do well. So focus on that. If you have an email list and it has 10 people, your focus for the next month should be to get it up to a hundred. You know what I mean? Because we don't want to worry about the close ratios. We want to worry about that list. Because that list is monetizable. So Hunter, if someone wanted to start up in this business, what is the one thing that set them to be successful? I would say that curating a list of mentors, which are willing to give you their playbook of their own success is critical. So number one, viewing that as a number one or a very important goal, saying who in this industry is acting in a similar capacity that I want to act in and doing it at an elite level. How can I reach out to them and establish a relationship with them? You know, one thing that I'm sure a lot of your listeners obviously listen to podcasts. So as you're listening to these podcasts, I think you should be trying to reach out to the guests. You know, something that I'd say is very, very impactful. If you're listening to a bunch of podcasts, I'm sure one or two people probably feel like from a gut instinct that maybe you'd be friends or maybe they, you know, you're like, you see yourself in their position in 10 years or whatever. I would listen not only to the content that they're talking about, but there's probably things that they say under their breath about their unique personality. So like, if you listen to a hundred podcasts of ours, you're going to find out that I don't like the government. I work out a lot and I don't really, I'm not a big fan of like the education system because it is the opposite of what I think actual learning is going deep. You know what I mean? That's where you actually get the gold. So if someone reaches out to me and they tap on those three or any of those, it's like, how am I not going to help them in some way? Am I not going to send them a resource? Am I not going to, you know, scheduling a call is very challenging, but like, here's an ebook. Here's like three podcasts that you should listen to. It's going to help you on your way because I see myself in them. And this is the same thing that I have done to others that I look up to. So that's a good hack. So I want to stop right here and ask you a quick question about your mentorship program you mentioned on the show earlier. If a student wanted to sign up for your mentorship programs, where would they go and what would they expect? Yeah, so it's on cfcmentorshipprogram.com. And basically, I created this so that through the lens of if I wanted to onboard an employee, what would I have them do? Like if I wanted to get a number two in our firm and say, do, here's everything that I know how to do. If you can do this, you're going to be successful. It's basically a real estate entrepreneur mentorship program. So everything from identifying what you actually want to accomplish 
putting that in an Excel document, reverse engineering that on a weekly, daily, monthly basis, you actually are tracking your key performance indicators and all the way to extremely advanced due diligence processes, both from a passive and an active side. So it's a little bit nerdy like I tend to be. It's very dense. Sometimes it can be like a textbook. But if you learn the content, you're going to understand this business better than mostly you know, 80% of the people that are succeeding in the industry. So what tool or techniques have you used to improve the efficiency of your business or personal life? Just looking through the lens of scalability. How can I make this more scalable, replicatable, repurposable, reusable? And even knowing that and saying that, I'm constantly relearning how important that is. So, you know, I mentioned already that I'm recording this internally, like not the Zoom version, but just our version so that we can repurpose it and reuse it. That's really critical. I'll give you another example. If you are hesitant or haven't yet created your first ebook, this is a no-brainer. Every real estate entrepreneur should be doing this like instantly. So what I would do, you let's say you get writer's block, you don't want to write or whatever. I would call your friend, have them interview you about this topic, whatever your niche is, and record it, then upload it to a company called podcast.co. And they have an AI algorithm that will actually transcribe it with like 99% accuracy, very, very inexpensively, like $40. Go through and actually review the transcription and that's your first ebook. And you can even hire someone Upwork for like $1,000 to rewrite it. And by the way, this is what I would do if I were in your position. And I've done this for episodes that we've done that have gotten a lot of traction. So there's one hack. Thank you so much for sharing, Hunter. So you mentioned a lot of different places where our listeners can go to find you. Is there any other place where uh, you'd like them to go visit so they can find out more about your story? Yeah, I mean, you've given me the opportunity to mention a bunch, so I appreciate that. But also, if you're interested in investing, our investment company is asymcapital.com. But everything else you guys are familiar with. I will say that that 111 questions is like the template. Like if you haven't downloaded that already, it's if you can answer all these questions, you're going to be an expert. So I would start there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Hunter. We really appreciate all the knowledge that you shared today. Happy to do it. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.